media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. question for you this morning. Now put on your kind of philosopher hat a little bit, your theological hat, maybe a a little bit of your practical hat. Faith. Is faith a yes or no matter? Or is it a little bit more complicated than that? Faith. Is it a yes or no matter? Or is it a little bit more complicated? Is faith one of those things you either have or you don't? Is it either 100% or 0%? Or is there times that you have a little faith? Or there's times that you have much faith? This morning as I bring that to you, I want you to know that faith is pretty complicated. And there's days that we have feel, you know, we really feel the presence of the Lord and the power of God's word and the power of his spirit in our lives. And maybe it has really increased our faith to what the Bible says is great faith. And I don't know about you, but there are days that even as a Christian, one that we know in our hearts that we've been redeemed because of the finished work of Christ, and yet we feel like we have really not much faith at all. So, so this dilemma, how do we have faith and respond correctly to this finished work of Christ? Is, is faith one of those that's not so much just yes or no, but is there a, a yes, no, and a whole lot of room in between? How would you answer that theologically? How would you answer that practically? How would you answer that in your own personal life? Is your faith either 100% or 0% or do you find yourself a lot of times just maybe even advancing and then other days struggling in your faith? I think that we could apply that to a lot of even non, if you want to say non-biblical, non-theological issues. For example, my beloved Atlanta Braves. Okay. <laughs> At what point in time, you know, did you have a hundred percent faith this year that the Braves are going to win the World Series? I mean, real question, you know. Last game, I, I put down here in my notes, game six, <laughs> two outs in the ninth with a seven to nothing lead. Okay. Because at that point I'm going, okay, there's, it's almost impossible. Now, why would we say that? Why would we say that? Because we've been there before. We've seen, you know, last year uh, a time. I mean, even if you went to, to to this year, if you look back just a couple months, we were a 500 club, guys. We'd lost as many as we had won. You go back two years, and eventually, you know, we were up 3-1 against the Dodgers and, and lost and didn't get to go into World Series. All of a sudden, we began to see that our, our faith, would you agree that even in non-biblical things, kind of goes up and down as the tide turns and as there's this momentum in life. And all of a sudden, if you see a lot of confidence, I mean, I love the guy. I know a lot of people don't. But how many of you, your faith meter went down when Luke Jackson came in to pitch? Okay, for those that are Braves fans, there's a lot of, yes. <laughs> why, why would it ebb and flow? Why would it go up and down? I, I think pretty much because we're fallen creatures, pretty much living in a fallen world, and that this is the vulnerability of our faith. God is consistent. God is always the same. There's never a day that he's not holy. There's never a day that he's not, you know, who he is, consistent in every single way. And yet you and I are the variable in that. 
And so there's times in our lives that even if we are Christians and we have truly trusted the work of Christ, and we know without a doubt that we are redeemed, and because of what Christ has done and finished, that we will be with God forever and ever. And yet as we travel this side, that our faith kind of goes up and down. And a lot of times it is because of circumstances, and it's circumstances that they affect our direct life. Now, spiritually, this is a really important question. Is, is faith all or nothing? Are there in between? Because when we begin to see how the Bible defines, how God himself defines faith and the importance of faith, we come across verses like this in Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Now let's just take a second for that. There's two words there that are really kind of a a measuring stick of faith from God's vantage point. Assurance, conviction. Are there days that you feel assurance and conviction in your faith in Jesus Christ? Are there days that you would say, I I have assurance and, and I have some conviction, but it's not 100%. And what's the variable there? Did God change? Did your hope change? No. Pretty much for the most part, our circumstances changed. And all of a sudden, things that we thought that God was kind of putting together, all of a sudden, if it takes a left turn or a right turn, some unexpected thing in our life, all of a sudden, it's like, okay, God, are you aware of what's going on here? I've always thought that that was one of the most peculiar answers that we would ever ask within our own mind. God, are you aware? In fact, we pray that way a lot of times. As if God is waiting there to get notes from us about our life. God, today, just want you to know, I had this situation at work, and the children were doing this, and God's going, wait, slow down. I'm writing all this down. It's kind of silly when you think about it, because this is not our God. He's already aware of not only yesterday, today, but tomorrow and forever. So this variable of faith, guys, is it's not our God being faithful or unfaithful, it's us. And this is the hope of the scripture, that God has made this proclamation that I will be faithful even when you're unfaithful. That there's a consistency in our God that deals with the inconsistency of ourselves. Hebrews eleven six. if we go down about five verses, it says this, and without faith it is impossible to please God. Well, number one, understand that the only pleasing that we do in God is through Jesus Christ, okay? But now this is a practical part. We're placed theologically in the finished work of Christ. But in a practical way, if we take it without faith, it is impossible to please God. There is this response that God has allowed us to, to have. And as we respond in faith, it does bring glory and pleasure to our Father. Faith is a really important matter. It is extremely important as we would go out and, and live this life. And as we come to the end of the Gospel of Mark, we begin to see that what Mark has been rushing toward, it's the fastest of all the Gospels, it's the shortest of all the Gospels, and he's in such a hurry to get to this very point that we see in chapter 16, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet when we get there, what we find is not everybody just standing around, you know, in these hallelujahs. What we see is a wonderment and actually some unbelief. Some fright. Some, oh my goodness, what have they done with the body? As we open up that final chapter of Mark, what we traditionally call the the Easter story or Resurrection Sunday, Christ has died. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He is guarded by soldiers. 
to prevent tampering. And some of the women who follow Jesus are now coming to anoint him after the Sabbath. Look at Mark 16, verse 1 and 2. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early in the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Now, I want you to notice something about these two verses. I want you to notice that these women are showing tremendous respect and tremendous love. I do have a question for you, though. Not in an accusatory way, but it's just in a kind of a wondering way. Are they showing great faith? I see some no's. I see maybe one or two of these. I know I would say, I would say that they're not really showing a hundred percent faith because Jesus said, I'm going to, in three days I will rise again. And yet they're bringing spices out of respect, out of the culture, out of everything within the show love. What they're doing is extremely loving. What they're doing is extremely respectful. But I don't know that it's showing a tremendous faith in response to what Jesus said about himself. By this time of the ministry, it was obvious to anybody that was around Jesus of what he declared, that he would die, he would be buried, and on the third day that he would rise again. And so is it possible to show great love for Christ, great respect for Christ, but waver sometimes because of our own expectations, that we're kind of reacting to the situation at hand rather than the promises of God? Have you ever done that? Have you ever responded to the situations at hand rather than the promises of God? Isn't it amazing that people who call themselves people of faith, that follow Christ, could respond to a situation rather than respond to a promise? And yet I would challenge that we've all done that, and I would even challenge that we all do that more often than we wish we would. But that sometimes is not hopefully a common thing in our life as a Christian, but it's not as uncommon as we would believe. That's, that's what these ladies, I, again, I'm not uh, you know, pointing an accusatory finger at them. I'm just going to observing Christ made it known, especially during the last six months of his ministry, of what was going to happen. He gave illustrations. He said the temple would come down. He'll build it back in three days. He gave illustrations. He gave exact you know, uh, information that they would be able to respond, and yet we see them coming to, to anoint his body, a loving, respectful thing, but maybe one that questions a little bit in faith. Look at verse 3 and 4. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. It was very large. They, they're going to do this in a loving, respectful way. They're going to do this because they, they truly did want to follow Jesus. And yet, did they really fully understand all that he had said? And so they see the obstacles. Verse 5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. Now listen to what... Listen to what he says. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. I like how the Gospel of Matthew says it. 
He is not here. He is risen just as he said. I mean, Mark is essentially saying the same thing here, recording the same thing. He, he told you that he was going to rise from the dead. Matthew just points it out a little bit more point blank. He's a little bit more just kind of, you know, the contrast isn't grayish. It's more of just a black white. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. And look at verse 7 as we read on. It says, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Always That was always the strange thing. Okay, the disciples and Peter? I thought Peter was one of the disciples. It's kind of a peculiar thing. We can cover that story later on, but it's one of those. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Do you remember back uh, several months ago, Mark chapter 14? Jesus told two things to his disciples. Two things. I will rise from the dead and I will meet you in Galilee. He makes this promise to them. And it's clear that they do understand that as far as the verbal. It wasn't like they didn't understand what he had said, but they didn't understand, I guess, the fullness of that because as we would read stories, as we would see different accounts, we begin to find out that they, they kind of have a hard time handling this. Mark chapter 14, verse 27, 28, And Jesus to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, he begins to quote Zechariah thirteen seven, and he says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This was Old Testament prophecy. It came true. Did they scatter? Yeah. And so what Jesus says is true. Now look at verse 28 there. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Two promises. I I, I will die, but I will raise up. That's the first promise. I, I will raise from the dead. And I want you to know that I will meet you in Galilee. I mean, if I gave you a promise and I said, okay, I'm going to meet you in Buford. And, and we just, you know, we make plans to be there. And all of a sudden, you know, it's, I said 12 o'clock and rather you're looking down and it's 1 o'clock and then it's 2.30 and then it's 4 o'clock. At what point in time do you sit and go, okay, Bobby said he was going to meet me at this place in Buford at 12 o'clock and now it's 4.30. I mean, how long do you stay there? Or how long, something must have come up. He makes this claim. He gives them this promise. And he's not delayed. He didn't say it was going to happen at this time. And then it didn't happen. Everything is going according to what Christ said. And yet there's this surprise. Jesus promised it. Jesus actually did it. Question, should that have settled it? Would we take that same line of thinking, that same line of action to the promises that Christ has given to us? That God has given us to his word, that he's made over 3,000 promises from Genesis to Revelation. Should that not be, God said it, God has done it. Should that settle it in our lives? So that we truly could react in 100% faith. Because he's faithful. And so where's this discrepancy? Why why do we have this rub now between 100% faith and just responding to all the promises of God and and our own admittance that sometimes we waver? 
and that we waver because of the, some of the circumstances that we find in our life. In his famous book, uh, Henry Blackby, uh, in, in Experiencing God, has a chapter, I believe it's chapter number seven, talks about crisis of belief. And he goes through the calling of God, and, and he says that when God calls us, as he has each Christian, he is called, and then there's going to be a time in most of our lives that we're going to have this thing called the crisis of belief. That we're going to kind of see that there's actually two routes that we could go. And one is the route of faith. The other one is the route where we're not being faithful to the promise, the call, or whatever it is that God is. We see this in just about every Old Testament character. We see this in Abraham. We certainly see this in David. We see this in Moses. Do we see it in ourselves? And if so, then, then let's ask an intelligent question, kind of a probing question, why? If God truly is faithful and he's kept every promise, then why is there wavering, why is there this temptation to kind of steer left when we know that the promise tells us to go right? I think that's a very valid Christian for living out Christianity. Very valid Christian a question of, of how do we, you know, what are we teaching our kids when we say, okay, respond in faith, and yet there's wavering in our own lives. Here's what Henry Blackaby says in, in his book. He says, as you respond to his call, you will face a crisis of belief, and at that time you will be faced with, what do I really believe about God? If that's not convicting enough, <laughs> let me read on. Can God and will God do what he says he wants to do through you? Can God do the seemingly impossible through your ordinary life? The way you respond to God's invitation reveals what you truly believe about God, regardless of what you say. Well, that's convicting. In other words, the way that I live my life in response to, the way that I have faith in response to the promises of God, the call of God, all that God has done for me, really is a telling of the sincerity. What do I really believe about God? Now, before you falsely assume that I'm putting everything on our shoulders, folks, we wouldn't even have these thoughts if it wasn't for a God who revealed himself to us, opened our eyes to our sin, and opened our eyes to a Savior. He's the one that does the revealing. He's the one that does the calling. And yet we see that our response sometimes is very strong and other times perhaps very weak. Mark 16, 8. And they went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They had witnessed the truth, and yet they were afraid. I mean, doesn't that kind of describe your my life sometimes? That even after we read his promises and, and we witness the truth about God, the truth about Christ, that sometimes fear, and we, we respond in that fear, it's not just these women. You might say, well, maybe it's the, the women. They were just kind of shocked. No, we go back and we find out. Uh, I'm going to take this from Mark 16, 11. Uh, it certainly kind of, uh, that's past the point where we thought was part of the original text. 
Um, but it certainly says this in the other Gospels. But look at Mark sixteen eleven. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. The Gospel of John says it this way. John 20, verse 8 and 9. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, this is after the women come back, they tell the disciples, to the disciples begin to run to see if it truly has happened. And uh, I imagine that during that length of time that they're running, if I had to run from here back to my house or here down the road, I, I would have time to think and I would be pondering, what did Jesus say? And is there an explanation for this empty tomb? The women come back and said that there's an empty tomb. His body's not there. Would you think that it would be natural that during that time of running from wherever they were to running to this empty tomb, that they would at least come across in their mind and in their memory what Christ had promised? I mean, that somewhere, one of the disciples said, you know... We really shouldn't be surprised. You know, he did say that he was going to rise again on the third day. In fact, he didn't say it just once. He said this a multitude of times. So I don't know that they're, I think that they're pondering this. They get there and then look what it says. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and what did he believe? He believed that Jesus was gone. Did he believe that he had risen? The next verse kind of shines some light on that. That's why we always read in context. Okay, Look at the next verse. For as yet he did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Was his belief, good, he rose from the dead. No, that wasn't the belief. The belief was that the women said, he's not in the tomb anymore. Because the very next verse says that they did not understand the scripture that he might rise from the dead. Folks, let us put ourselves all throughout this gospel of Mark. We've asked the question, where would you have been in this crowd? And there's so many times I think that we can come away with this really pious attitude about ourselves. Well, I would not have been that one throwing stones or I would not have been almost in every story. If there's an antagonist, if there's somebody who's really kind of come against the grain and against the things of God, I almost always see myself as, yeah, unfortunately, I can kind of see where I would have kind of gone and been in that mode. Mode. Where would you have been this first Easter morning? Where would you have been this day of resurrection? Well, at least these two disciples, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that they, that he must rise from the dead. Even though he had said that he sees it, he believes what he sees, that there's an empty tomb, and yet he does not understand. Isn't that the challenge of our faith? Has God revealed himself by his spirit coming in flesh and his word? Has God revealed himself? Has he given us the ability by opening our eyes to see truth? So he's revealed himself. He has stated truth. And yet if we don't respond in 100% kind of compliance, where's the breakdown? We establish that it's not God. He's always faithful. I believe it's what it says here about these disciples. Sometimes we do not understand. What is it that we do not understand? What did we not grasp? 
How hard is it for you to grasp that he's the all the that he's the all sufficient one when there's present needs in your life? It could be financial, it could be emotional, it could be you know a lot of different things. You know the promise, and, and Christian friends are always quick to give you those promises. Have you ever noticed that? And they mean good. They're there to encourage. Well, you know the Bible says. <laughs> It's like, okay, you're just pointing out how much I here am absent of this life of faith. Because you're pointing out this biblical truth that God is sad, and yet the more you say that, the more I see how I am straying off to the left or the right. It's this failure to understand. Understand what? I think sometimes the failure to understand that truly when God is the faithful one, that he's always faithful. That he's the wise one. He is always wise. He cannot be unwise. Have you ever thought that? He cannot be unwise. Have you ever made a decision and then with later data said, I, if going back I would have made this other decision. This is called growing. Called becoming more wise. This never describes God. Because he always knows. There is not a part of information that God is anticipating, waiting on, going, okay, I'm waiting. Okay, now that I've got this information, here's the direction that we're going to go. He is all-knowing, the past, today, and all the future and all eternity. God is all-wise because he has all the information. And he's perfect. He's always working for his glory. So when God makes these promises to us, folks... He is faithful and he is wise. But our lack of understanding comes when we can't quite grasp that. Have you ever really had a time that there was a personal sin in your life? You don't have to tell us what that sin is. And even though, like we sing that song, to to wash away all of our sin, has there ever been a sin that you kind of held on to, you know, for a while? Ministering to um, some ladies years ago. Three separate ladies, and yet their story was pretty much the same, and their struggle was the same. Even though they were not really aware of one another, three different counselings over a period of years. And uh, earlier in their life, they had aborted a child. If you ask them, are you a Christian, they would say yes. If you ask them, do you believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins? They would say yes. If you said, do you believe that he has forgiven you of all your sins? They would say yes. And yet, there was such a deep personal struggle in their lives, especially on the anniversary every year, as they would look back. I I understand that, guys. That in part of our mind goes... I know that you have totally forgiven me, God. You have totally forgiven me of everything that I've ever done. And yet, aren't there times that somehow deep in our sin, deep in our mind, we're going, but but God, this is such a terrible one. Somehow, somehow, some way. No, we can't even complete that sentence. He is faithful and just. As we have come and so okay, God, I trust in the finished work of Christ as we come and we, we plead toward that and we come and we trust that. 
then it is all sufficient. We're the ones that says big sins and little sins. But do you relate to that? Do you relate that here's a promise of God and I will wash you as white as snow. Though your sins be as scarlet, I will wash you as white as snow. Do you believe that promise? Do you believe that? And in First John it says that, that when we come to him, that all of our unfaithfulness that we can claim, that he'll forgive us of all of our sins. And yet we struggle. And this is our struggle of faith. How to grasp that God is in control when your life is a wreck. Have you ever dealt with that one? I mean, your life is in the ditches, proverbially. You've run off the road. You're turned over 14 times and you're up against a tree. I mean, crash and burn, this is your life. And yet God says, okay, I'm in control. There's a disconnect there in our mind. And yet God is God aware. Does God know? I pray this never happens to any of you this point on. But for any parent who's a parent of teenage and adult children, And you see wrecks. I'm not talking about physical wrecks. I'm just talking about the things that all of a sudden a life goes off to the side and twists and turns. You talk about a challenge to your faith, guys, because you love those kids. And somehow in our minds, we get this picture that we love our children more than God does. Isn't that amazing that we could make that kind of leap? And this is our challenge to our faith. Because we see the carnage over here. We see the wreck over here. And not that God has caused that, but certainly since he's a sovereign God, he's at least allowed that. And that maybe he's working his His will and his sovereignty all, all the way through that. And yet, what a hard, hard thing when it comes to our children because somehow we have taken ownership of our children and God says, okay, I don't have ownership of you, my children. I mean, do the math, guys. Do the math part. Do the logic of that. And yet we would strain in our faith. Here's the good news this morning. When Christ rose from the grave, when he met his disciples back in Galilee, just as he said, even though they had abandoned him and resided in fear, it showed the power of his promise amidst people who sometimes doubt and are fearful. Is that good news? I'm not saying that we use this as, you know, somehow we we just get lazy in our pursuit of of holiness in our lives. Please don't hear that because that wouldn't line up biblically. I just know that my shortfall has been covered sufficiently by all the work of Christ. I don't say that as an excuse. I say that as a theological reality. Understand this great truth that from Genesis to Revelation, over 3,000 promises, and all of those have been made yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And yet I love Mark's transparency here. I love the transparency of the scripture. 
Instead of saying, hey, we went and we didn't bring any spices. We didn't, because we knew that he was going to be risen from the dead. Uh, we didn't even lock the doors. We didn't even scatter and run away. I, I would love somehow if Mark tried to promote that they were heroic in all their reactions to this. And yet he doesn't. And the gospels doesn't show us that. What it shows us is this vulnerability to our faith and yet the redeeming work of our Christ. This is our hope, guys. Say it however you want to, that you're looking for your ability to hold on to him. What a fallacy. What a fallacy. He's holding on to you. If it was up to you and me to hold on to him, we would not have faith. We would not have eternal life. We would not have redemptive life. He is faithful even in the midst of our unfaithfulness. Does that call us into a a laziness? No. The Bible, the gospel calls us into spiritual holiness to reflect Christ, to trust him more and more, to demonstrate great faith as the Bible would use that term. That's our calling, guys, into great faith. But when your faith isn't 100%, you say, honestly, pastor, it's, 40% 40% today, 50% on this matter. Understand his faithfulness. Understand his faithfulness. And understand that, that he has finished the work. We come to the end of, of Mark's gospel now. and There's a verse in Mark that's my favorite verse of all. It's my favorite prayer in the Bible. Not just because it's a short prayer. A little bit because it's a short prayer. <laughs> we, we found it back in Mark chapter 9, verse 24. I believe, help my unbelief. I think that's probably one of the most biblical, honest, transparent prayers in all the Bible. I believe. I truly do believe. Would you say that this morning that you do believe? But would you say that because we are fallen people in the fallen world, we still have to contend with this old nature, even though that Christ has sufficiently and thoroughly saved us, we're still contending with the old man, as the Gospels would tell us. We're still contending with this, that even though you have faith and believe, that you still have to deal with some unbelief in your life. What an honest prayer. Biblically, How do you think what you know about God, biblically, not guessing, not making your own God, but what God has said about himself, how does God respond to this prayer? Pointing out our infractions? Our loving Father who gracefully says, that's why I'm the sufficient one. This is why I provided the all-sufficient one. But I call you into deeper faith. We're not promoting spiritual laziness here. What we're promoting is just that God through his very spirit would bring to us this redemptive, this uh, redemptive life, this, this holy life because of his goodness, because of his grace, because of his faithfulness. I believe it's one of the most sincere, transparent, honest, really good, solid gospel prayers there is, I believe. Today, will you help my unbelief? Because right now, this challenge 
As I look at the fork in the road, I know what you have promised, and yet there's so many things just kind of make me veer over to the side. I believe, God, will you help me in my own belief? And the very power of his spirit in our lives, the power of his word, comes into action into our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you. And Father, you had built up uh, anticipation of uh, of hope in the lives of the disciples. And yet, at this moment, Father, that it really comes into being, into action, Father, we see that they are filled with fear and disbelief. And Father, rather than pointing the finger at them and say, how could they have done that? Father, would you allow us this morning to be transparent before you, holy God, and say, see that in our own lives so that we can confess that, Father, and we can ask you, Father, and come to you and say, God, will, will you give us, will you just fill us with this living hope of Jesus Christ? If you loved us so much that you would send your own son to die for us. And Father, not that you had to prove it, but Father, you have proven time and time and time again that you are trustworthy. So will you increase our faith, Father? Will you build our faith? That even when shadows come and train wrecks happen in our life that Father we would stand on your word we would stand on you Father and your faithfulness and who you are that we would stand on the finished work of Christ our living hope for we pray this in the power of his name Amen Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.